Morning, everybody. Great to see you all this morning. Great to have um, Ethan and Naomi back from honeymoon. Oh, fantastic. The new Mr. and Mrs. Mullis. Got two Mr. and Mrs. Mullises in the room. Brilliant. Great to see you all this morning. And anybody else who's here for the first time or if you're back visiting, it's great to have you all this morning. There's an outline on your seat if you find that useful just to help you follow through what I'm saying, and also everything will be up on the screen as well. Every now and again, a company will try to change and update and replace a well-known and tried and tested product with what they claim, and what often is, a new and improved version. Coca-Cola did this in 1985 in the USA by launching what they called New Coke. And although it was healthier, it tasted better, lots of people in the US wanted to go back to the original Coke. Now, I'm not going to make any judgment about Americans. That would be wrong. But there was a massive backlash from the public because although it was actually a superior product, the new Coke was actually superior. The American public just couldn't get over their attachment to the original product, possibly something to do with the sugar content and all that kind of stuff as well, maybe. And within a very short space of time, Coca-Cola had to revert back to what they then called classic Coke because the public wanted what they were familiar with. And it was an absolute shambles, and it cost them millions, and eventually New Coke was phased out altogether. Now, the book of Hebrews was written to Jews who had become Christians probably about 20 or so years after Jesus had died on the cross, risen from the dead, and ascended back to heaven. And even though they had trusted in Jesus, they had their sins forgiven once and for all, they now had an eternal relationship with God through Jesus, some of them wanted to go back to their equivalent of classic Coke rather than enjoy all the benefits of new Coke. In other words, these Jewish Christians were being tempted to go back to their old Jewish faith and all the things that went with it instead of following Jesus. And although that made no sense, just like classic Coke and new Coke, that's what many of them were trying to do. And that meant going back to things like worshipping in the big temple in Jerusalem, the, the, the special priesthood, the, the animals that were sacrificed for sins, the, the, all the ceremonies that went with that. And the book of Hebrews was primarily written to say to its readers who were new Christians, don't go back to Judaism. It's pointless and it's powerless. What Jesus offers you is so much better than anything Judaism can offer you. Stick with new Coke. Don't go back to classic Coke. Around 1,400 years earlier, God had entered into a covenant or a special agreement with the Jewish people through their leader Moses. And the covenant was basically this, that if they, God's chosen people, kept the Ten Commandments and all the other laws and, and rules and regulations that we find in the first uh, five books of the Bible, then God would bless them. If, however, they didn't keep those laws and regulations, then God wouldn't bless them. And in fact, the opposite would happen. They would, they would actually suffer and they'd be punished by God. And sadly, that's what happened throughout their history. But God had also promised that in the future, there would be a new covenant, a new relationship between himself and his people. But not only the Jews this time, but actually people everywhere. And when Jesus came, he introduced this new covenant this new arrangement between God and man, God and people. Jesus introduced the spiritual equivalent of new Coke. And Hebrews chapter 8 deals with the fact that the new covenant that Jesus introduced is better, it's greater, it's superior to the old covenant. 
We're restarting today our studies in the book of Hebrews again today here at Regent. We paused uh, at the end of last year, and we're going to be working through from chapter 8 today right through to the end of the book of Hebrews just before Christmas. So let's read uh, Hebrews chapter 8, but let's start just a few verses early just for a little bit of context at the end of chapter 7. So if you've got a Bible with you, then I'd encourage you to turn turn with me to it, open it up, and we're going to read, and I'll read to you, uh, Hebrews uh, 8, but we're going to start at verse... Uh, 24 uh, of chapter 7. If you haven't got a Bible or you just want to listen, that's totally fine. So Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 24. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. The point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already men who offer the priests prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that's a copy and shadow of what's in heaven. This was why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, and it is founded on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this new covenant new, He has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. So these verses talk about Jesus as being a priest, and they're comparing Jesus as a priest with the priests who served in the Jewish temple. And what the writer is saying is that Jesus as a priest is infinitely greater and better than that old Jewish priesthood. Now, a priest is somebody who represents God to man and God to man and, and, and then represents mankind, represents people back to God. He acts as a kind of spiritual mediator or a kind of go-between between God and people and people and God. That's what a priest does. And, and that's what Jesus has done. And that's what Jesus continues to do for us if we've trusted in him. He's come to earth and he's revealed God to us in himself. He's acting as a priest on God's behalf to us. And then by living the perfect life and dying in our place on the cross and taking the punishment for our sins, he's then able to represent us before God acts as this perfect spiritual go-between. 
The Jewish priests had to go into the temple in Jerusalem and offer sacrifices firstly for their own sins because they were sinners and then offer sacrifices for everybody else's sins. But their sacrifices were never sufficient. And this process kept on having to be repeated day after day and year after year. But when Jesus came and acted out in this role of priest or the great high priest, instead of sacrificing an animal to symbolically take away our sin, Jesus offered his own life to God. He didn't offer an animal, he offered himself. We see this in verse 3. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one, he's referring to Jesus, also to have something to offer. Through his life and death, Jesus has performed the role of a high priest, and he had to have something to offer to God as a sacrifice for our sins to be a priest. But instead of offering animals as the Jewish priest did, Jesus offered himself. And so Jesus wasn't just the priest, he was also the sacrifice. He was a priest and, a, and the sacrifice. And he did this, of course, when he died on the cross. Not for his own sins, because he was sinless, but for our sins, for my sin and for your sin. And as Jesus laid down his life and died there on the cross, he absorbed all of the wrath of a holy God towards all the wrong things that you and I have ever done. And justice was satisfied, justice was done, as we sang in that song earlier. But here's the great bit. Look at verse 1. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. The Jewish priests were never able to sit down in the temple, partly because they wouldn't have dared to, but partly also because their work was never finished. They were just always working, still going on with their work. No sacrifices they offered ever properly dealt with sin. They were never sufficient to completely take away sin. So their work was never ending. But Jesus, as our high priest, offered himself as a sacrifice, took the punishment for our sins, and having completed this task, he then, he then sat down at the right hand of God, at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Hebrews 10 verse 12 says the same thing. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. His work was done. He could sit. His work was finished. And the last words that Jesus cried on the cross were, It is finished. His great task that he'd come to do was done, it was finished, it was paid in full. And Jesus has done everything that was necessary for you and I to have our sins forgiven, to have a relationship with God and to have an eternal life. It was finished. It is finished. It's done. And the book of Hebrews is trying to point out to, the, to these Jewish Christians, these Jews who'd become Christians probably about 20 or so years after Jesus had died on the cross, that the writer of this book is trying to point out to them the futility and the stupidity of going back to Judaism. Because the priests in Judaism couldn't deal with sin. The sacrifices couldn't deal with sin. But Jesus has come. He's the greatest priest and he's the great sacrifice. He's done it completely once and for all. And for us today, whilst we might not be tempted to go back to Judaism. I'm not aware that any of us are kind of recent converts from Judaism. There might be someone in the room, but it's unlikely that that's going to be an issue for us. But what we often end up doing as believers in our lives is thinking that maybe, you know, for God to really accept me, for God to really take me and accept me and love me, I've got to somehow add to what Jesus has already done. I've, what Jesus has done isn't really sufficient. I've got to try and please him or impress him some more. But if you've trusted in Jesus, then Jesus has done it all. His work as the priest and the sacrifice was once and for all. So all of your sins have been dealt with, not just the past ones, not even just the present ones, but even the ones you've yet to commit. If you are in Christ, past, present, and future are all forgiven. You are a forgiven one. 
you've trusted in Jesus, then you've already been given by God all that Jesus died to make possible. The business of getting right with God is already done. It is finished. His priesthood is done. Jesus did it all for you on the cross, and there's nothing that you need to add to what Jesus did. There's nothing that you need to add to what Jesus has done for you, and there's nothing that you can add. That's the whole point. That's why Jesus had to die. See, Jesus is sufficient for you. So often as Christians, we think, maybe you know, I, I need to add to what Jesus has done for me. We, we fall into the trap of thinking that the cross just isn't enough. For God to really like me, I've got to go to church more. For God to really like me, I need to have seven quiet times on a row and not miss one. Maybe for God to really like me, I've got to dress a certain way or, or speak a certain way. God might love me more if I told some more people about him. Maybe God would love me more if I gave some more money to the church or if I got up earlier and, and, and prayed for longer. I'm so glad that his love for me is not dependent on that in my case or in any of our cases. Now, some of those things are really good things to do. Probably all of those things are really good things to do. Some of them are really important, but they won't change how God feels about you. It's great to want to do things for God, to pray, to read the Bible, to tell others about him, to commit yourself to church. But it's important that we do those things because of our love for God, not because we're still trying to earn God's love. You already have God's love completely and utterly in Jesus. We can never earn it in the first place. If you are in Christ this morning, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, you already have God's love and you can't have any more of it. It's impossible to get any more of God's love. It is already all yours. And you've already been accepted because Jesus said it is finished. And the basis upon of which you're accepted is because you've put your faith and trust in Jesus. And any time we try to add simply the trusting in Jesus, in who he is and what he's done so that we can maybe try and be accepted by God or we think that that might help God to accept us more or love us more, any time we try and do that, we're straying into legalism where it's all about rules. And that's precisely what the old covenant was all about or partly about. And once we start inventing rules and saying that we have to do certain things, we've added to the gospel message, that simple message, which is that good news about Jesus, that it's simply faith and trust in Jesus. By our very actions, when we do that kind of thing, when we start living that way, we probably don't mean it, we don't really mean this, but by our very actions, Basically, what we're saying is the cross wasn't enough. What Jesus did on the cross wasn't enough, so I've got to kind of top it up. We're saying that what Jesus did, that he hadn't really finished the business of getting us right with God, and so I just need to kind of add to that by, by doing certain good things. And this morning, if you've trusted in Jesus, then my message to you as a Christian, as someone who is a follower of Jesus, a believer in Jesus, is this. Start enjoying God's love. Know that you are free, know that you are accepted, know that you are loved, and enjoy that. You don't have to earn it. Nothing you can do can make God love you any more, and nothing that you can do will make God love you any less. Just enjoy the fact that you are loved. Jesus finished the work. It's done. You don't have to do anything other than just enjoy his love for the rest of eternity. He did it so that you won't have to. And now he sat down at God's right hand in heaven and you have been reconciled to God. You are God's friend. You are his child if you've trusted in him. And, and, and as God looks at you this morning, he really loves you. He doesn't just tolerate you. He really loves you. He really, really loves you. Maybe this morning you're thinking, 
I just find that hard to accept. If you knew what I was really like, you wouldn't love me. And probably that's, there's, there's some truth in that. Certainly truth in that for me. But God knows every single thing about you. And Jesus knew every single thing about you when Jesus was there on the cross. And he opened his arms wide and said, this is how much I love you. He knew everything about you, and yet he loves you the same. And he died for you, knowing every single mess up and foul up and screw up you'd ever make. As God looked at you this morning, he really loves you. No matter what you do in life, nothing will ever change that fact. You are loved by God. Verse 6 says this, But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs, that's the, the, the priests of this old covenant, as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. And it's founded on better promises. We sung, didn't we, about the promises of God. Just as Jesus' priesthood is superior to the Jewish priests, so this new covenant, this new agreement, arrangement between God and humanity that, that, that Jesus is mediator of is superior to the old one. The old covenant was given by God to Moses and was the basis by which the nation of Israel had to live in a relationship with God. Now, there was nothing wrong with the covenant. The covenant was given by God, and everything God gives is good. Everything God does is good. But there was a problem. Look at verses 7 and 8. For if there'd been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people. The covenant was between God and the nation of Israel. And the problem wasn't with God. The problem wasn't with the covenant. The problem was with the people. So what was wrong with the people? Well, the Apostle Paul, who himself was a Jew who trusted in Jesus, talks about this in Romans 7 verse 10, talking about the commands of the old covenant. This is what he says. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. And he's referring to the, the, the Ten Commandments, and he's referring to the whole package of rules and regulations of what's called the law, the Old Testament covenant between God and Israel. God gave the law to Moses for the Israelites, but what it actually did was expose their inability to keep it. Why? Because every Israelite, just like every other human being, was and is a sinner and is incapable of perfectly keeping God's standards. God revealed his perfect standard in the law, but what it did was just show that human beings were incapable of reaching that perfect standard. So what was the point of the law? Well, look at what Paul says in Galatians 3. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law was partly given to show to mankind that it was incapable, that we were incapable and are incapable of meeting God's perfect holy standards. And in so doing, it points us to the fact that we need someone else to sort our mess out. It points us to the fact that we need a savior. When I look at the Ten Commandments, the, the kind of headline commandments of the Old Covenant, and there's many more commandments, but the, the Ten Commandments are the kind of headline ones. When I look at them, I, all I see is how regularly I fail to, to keep most of them, to be honest with you. Let's look at them briefly. I, I've paraphrased them for you. Worship only God. Do not have any idols. Do not misuse God's name. Keep one day a week special for God. Honor your parents. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not cover. Now, if we're really, really honest, we have all broken all of those commands at some point or other. I have certainly broken every single one of these commandments in some way or other. Now, you might not have murdered somebody, but Jesus says that if you've hated someone in your heart, then as far as God is concerned, you're a murderer. You might not have committed adultery, but Jesus says if you've even looked lustfully at somebody else, you are an adulterer. 
And probably, if we're honest, most of us break most of these commands fairly regularly in, in different ways. Maybe you guys don't. Maybe I'm just the, the depraved one. But I think if we're honest, we probably all break them regularly. And as such, the Bible declares us to be sinners. We're guilty, and therefore we face the wrath of God towards our sin. And so looking at God's law and seeing how far short we fall, we become very aware that we need rescuing. We need a savior. And, and, and that's why God sent Jesus, his one and only son, to be that very savior. Jesus is the solution to our problem. So the law leads us to Christ. The, the Old Testament covenant, the, the, the law, it, it leads us to Christ. It shows us that we need Jesus to rescue us. It shows us that we need Jesus to save us from our sins so that we can be justified by faith. And to be justified simply means to be put right with God. It means that God declares us holy and righteous and sinless, and that happens when we put our faith and trust in Jesus. That's what it means to be justified by faith, to be made right with God through faith in him. When we turn to him and ask him to deal with the problem of our sin. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Jesus was sinless. He was perfect, and he died in our place and allowed God to punish him for all of the sin in your life and all of the sin in my life so that we could be made right with God through faith in him. We've all fallen so far short of God's perfect standard. We've all broken God's laws, and because of this, we all desperately need a Savior. As you've listened to what I've just said, I, I wonder what your reaction is this morning. If you're a Christian... I'm guessing, I'm hoping that you're thinking, well, thank you, Jesus, for being my savior. Thank you, Jesus, that you died for me. Thank you for that. And we're going to do that in a, in a little bit. We're going to take bread and wine together to celebrate Jesus' love for us. And we're going to say thank you to him as we do that. But maybe you're not a Christian this morning. Maybe you've never given your life to Jesus. You've never surrendered your life to him. You haven't put your faith and trust in him. Well, God's law reveals you as a sinner in need of a savior. And Jesus offers himself to you this morning, and he will be your savior if you will turn away from your old life and turn to him in faith, confessing that you are a sinner, confessing that you have screwed up and that you've made a mess, and asking him for his forgiveness. The question is, the challenge is, will you take that step? Will you take that step this morning? And if you want to take that step, you can do that right now. You can simply, in faith, come to Jesus and, and just say, Lord, I have not lived the way I should. And I thank you, Jesus, that you did live the way I should. Thank you, Jesus, that you died for me. Please forgive me for my sin. Please come and be my Lord and Savior. Simple as that, or words to that effect. Maybe you're not really sure what to do or you want to chat about it further. I'd be delighted to talk to you after the, the service is over this morning. This new covenant, though, shouldn't have been a surprise to the Jews in general, and especially to these Jewish Christians that the writer was addressing in Hebrews because God had already promised this new covenant and he promised it in the Old Testament of the Bible. Look at verse 8. The writer, here, the writer here quotes from the book of Jeremiah, one of the Old Testament books and prophets, and he says this, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. About 500 years before Jesus died on the cross, God told his people through Jeremiah, his prophet, that he was going to make a new covenant. And then he goes into some detail about this new covenant. 
This is what he says. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. This new covenant that God had promised and which has been now established by Jesus, which those who've become Christians have entered into and are now part of, isn't about keeping an external list of laws and and rules and regulations. Instead of God's standards and ways for his people being written on external stone tablets or kind of slabs of stone like the Ten Commandments were, written by the very hand of God on, on Mount Sinai, instead of that, they'll be written instead on our hearts, written on our minds. As people give their lives to Jesus, they're given brand new hearts. The Bible says if anybody's in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. We've got new hearts. We're born again. We're brand new people. Not physically, but when somebody becomes a Christian, they become a new person. They're born again. And God's Holy Spirit is the, is the agent of that change, and he comes to live within a person so that God's ways are now wired into the believer's heart, into the Christian's heart. Under the old covenant, God revealed what he expected from his people, but they had no internal power to properly and completely keep those laws. In fact, because of their sin, they were unable to. But now, because of the work of the Holy Spirit within us in making us into new people, if we've trusted in Jesus, and because of the, Holy, the power of the Holy Spirit within us, it, it means that we have a new desire, and it means that we have a new ability to live God's ways. Verses 11 and 12, we read these words, No longer will a man teach his neighbor. Or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Every person that enters into this covenant or agreement with God, which they do through putting their faith and trust in Jesus, receives an intimate and personal relationship with God. In the Christian New Covenant community, every believer knows God personally and directly from the least to the greatest. They don't have to come through a priest. They are the priest. Jesus is the high priest, and if we know Jesus this morning, then we are priests. We can enter into God's presence just like that at all times. And not only that, but our wickedness is forgiven, and our sins are removed, and God chooses never to bring them up again. Isn't that amazing? Aren't you so glad that God will never raise our sins ever again? The old covenant system of sacrifices for sin could never properly remove sin, could never guarantee a person's forgiveness. And the people had to approach God through the priest. But if we've trusted in Jesus, then he's become our high priest, our our representative before God. And that means that all of our sins are gone, past, present, and future, all dealt with by Jesus. Now, under the old covenant, the Jews had to obey God's law. So what about us in this new covenant? What does that look like for us then? Well, as Christians, we're no longer bound to keep the law that was given to Moses. It's helpful in in that it shows us how holy God is. It shows us what sin is, and it shows us that we need a Savior. But we don't need to keep the law to receive God's blessing in this life or in order to get to heaven. That comes through trusting in Jesus and his work as a priest on our behalf day by day. And we don't have to keep the law every day. Instead, we're to follow what the Bible calls the law of Christ. When asked what the most important commandment of the entire law of the old covenant was, Jesus said this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. This is called the law of Christ. 
And, and as Christians, we're now free from that law of Moses, which was part of the old covenant, and instead we follow the law of Christ. We're to love God, and we're to love others. We're to be passionate about God and passionate about people. That's our tagline here at Regent, and it sums up the whole Christian faith. So if we don't have to keep a, a list of written rules and regulations, how do we know what it looks like and means to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves? How do we define that? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 23, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. As Christians living in this new covenant, we're free from the rules and the regulations of the old covenant. There's a sense in which we can live exactly as we want. Everything is permissible, says Paul, but not everything is beneficial. Not everything is going to be beneficial in my relationship with God. Not everything is going to help me love God. So we have to ask ourselves whether our behavior is this, is what I'm about to do or say or think, is this going to help my relationship with God or is it going to get in the way of my relationship with God? Is it going to help me love him more or is it going to help me, probably cause me to love him less? And if we want to know the answer to that, then the Holy Spirit within us will lead us and guide us. He'll write it on our hearts, says the writer to Hebrews, says Jeremiah, if we let him and if we keep in step with him day by day. And part of the way he does that is through what he's already said in the Bible because he will never lead us to do something different to what he's already said in his word. Paul says everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. So under the new covenant, yes, there's a sense in which we're free to live as we want to, but we need to ask ourselves, will my behavior be constructive in my relationship with other people? Is my behavior loving towards others? Is what I'm about to do going to help me love my neighbor as myself? And again, if you want to know the answer to that, then the Holy Spirit within us will lead us and guide us. He will write it on our hearts if we'll let him, if we keep in step with him. So our behavior should demonstrate love for God and love for people. And that is our model for living as, as Christians in the new covenant, as new covenant people. Loving God and loving others. And instead of having an external list of rules and regulations written on slabs of stone, the law, the Old Testament law, as good as it is... If we've trusted in Jesus, we now have the Holy Spirit living within us. And as we spend time each day, uh, spending time with God and allowing the Holy Spirit to, to kind of fan that flame of life and love within us, as we read the Bible, as we pray, as we focus on Jesus, the Holy Spirit writes what God wants from us on our hearts, not on external slams of stone. He moves us and directs us in those ways and towards those ways of behaving which will be beneficial in my relationship with God and constructive in my relationship with others. And not only does he direct us and show us what those ways of living are, he also gives us the power to live that. We can live victorious Christian lives. It is possible for us. He has given us everything we need to live a life that is worthy of him. He gives us the power to live that way. Whether we choose to do that is, of course, a whole other story. God has given us everything we need to live that life for him in God. The Holy Spirit lives within our hearts. He writes on our hearts and on our minds. He leads us and he guides us if every day we surrender to him and we're walking in step with his spirit. So this morning, if you're not a believer in Jesus, then can I urge you to face up to your failure, which is the failure of every human being, to keep God's laws and instead to trust in Jesus and receive his forgiveness and eternal life. And if you've already trusted in Jesus, then don't try to add what he's already done for you. 
Instead, live in the good of the completed work of Jesus and enjoy God's love. Celebrate it. Enjoy. Live in the liberation and the freedom of God's love. And as we live each day, the challenge for us all is to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit as he writes on our hearts what God wants from us, to keep in step with the Spirit each day, to be filled with the Spirit again and again so that we might live lives that honor and glorify God, lives that are loving others and loving God, fulfilling that law of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you left heaven and came and lived the perfect life. You brought uh, God to us, and we thank you that you now bring us to God. We thank you that you are that perfect priest, that perfect go-between, that mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We thank you that you've done that for us. We thank you that you died on the cross. Thank you for taking our sin there. Thank you for living for us and dying for us and rising for us. And this morning, we just want to worship you and thank you. Forgive us, Father, for those times when we, when we think that somehow what you've done for us isn't enough. Help us just to enjoy your love. Help us to revel in your love. And as we take communion together now, help us to enjoy and celebrate and just yeah, revel and bask in your love. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy to us. Help us today and every day, Lord, to live in ways that honor and glorify you. Help us to love you with all our heart. Help us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Help us to keep in step with your spirit that we might live lives that honor and glorify you. We ask this in the wonderful and precious name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to sing one song. Before the throne of God above.